Chapter 15 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 15 The harpsichord arrived in the course of the day. It was the same that Consuelo had hired in Berlin at her own expense. She was well satisfied not to have to risk with another instrument a new acquaintance less agreeable and less sure. On his side, the king, who looked after the smallest details in business matters, had inquired, on giving orders to send the harpsichord to the prison, if it belonged to the prima donna, and on learning that it was a locati, he had sent word to the musical instrument maker who owned it that he would guarantee its restitution, but that the expense was to be paid by the prisoner. Upon which, the man, having permitted himself to remark that he had no recourse against the person in prison, especially if she should die there, Monsieur de Pernit, charged with this important negotiation, replied, laughing, My dear sir, you would not wish to quibble with the king about such a trifle, and besides it would do no good, your harpsichord is under writ of arrest, to be registered at Spandau this very day. The pauperina's manuscripts and scores were likewise brought to her, and she was astonished that so much indulgence in the discipline of the prison, the commanding major of the place came to pay her a visit in order to explain to her that she would continue to perform at first female singer at the Theatre Royal. Such is the will of his majesty, said he to her. Every time that the manager of the opera places you upon the programme for a performance, a carriage will convey you under escort to the theatre at the appointed hour, and will bring you back to the fortress immediately after the piece. These removals will be made with the greatest punctuality and with the respect due to you. I hope, mademoiselle, that you will not compel us, by any attempt to escape, to increase the rigour of your captivity. Conformably to the king's orders, you have been placed in a chamber that is warmed, and you will be permitted to walk upon the rampart which you see, as often as may be pleasant to you. In a word, we are responsible not only for your person, but for your health and for your voice. The only vexation you will experience from us will be that of being kept au secret, and not communicating with anyone, either within or without the walls. As we have but few ladies here, and one keeper is sufficient for the building you occupy, you will not endure the discomfort of being served by coarse persons. The honest face and good manners of Mr. Schwartz must satisfy on that point. A little ennui, will therefore be the only evil that you will have to suffer. And I can understand that at your age and in the brilliant position in which you were... Fear not, Sir Major, replied Consuelo with a little pride. I am never ennuied when I can employ myself, and I ask only one favour. It is to have writing materials and a light, so that I can practice in the evening. That is entirely impossible. I am very sorry to refuse the request of such a courageous person, but I can, as some compensation, authorise you to sing at every hour of the day and night, as may seem good to you. 
Your chamber is the only one inhabited in this isolated tower. The keeper's lodging is below, to be sure, but Mr. Schwartz is too well-bred to complain at hearing such a beautiful voice, and as to myself, I regret not being within reach to enjoy it. This dialogue at which Mr. Schwartz was present was terminated by low bows, and the old officer retired, convinced by the tranquillity of the cantatrice that she was there for some infraction of the rules of the theatre, and for some weeks at most. Consuelo herself did not know whether she was there charged with complicity in a political conspiracy, or for the sole crime of having rendered service to Frederick Dole Trenck, or finally for simply having been the discreet confidant of the Princess Amelia. During two or three days, our captive experienced more discomfort, sadness and ennui than she was willing to confess to herself. The length of the nights, which were still fourteen hours at that season, was particularly disagreeable to her, so long as she hoped that she might relieve herself by obtaining from Mr. Schwartz light, ink, pens and paper. But it did not require a long time to convince her that this obsequious man was endowed with an inflexible obstinacy. Schwartz was not wicked. He had not, like many of his kind, the inclination to cause suffering. He was even pious and devout after his manner, thinking that he served God and ensured his own salvation, provided that he conformed to those engagements of his profession which he could not elude. It is true that these reserved cases were few in number, and bore upon those articles in which there were fewer chances of profit from the prisoners than chance of danger as regarded his place. Is she so simple, said he, speaking of Consuelo to his wife, as to imagine that I would expose myself to the risk of losing my situation for the sake of making a few groschen a day on a candle? Take good care, replied his wife who was the egeria of his avaricious inspirations, not to advance a single dinner to her when her purse is exhausted. Don't be troubled, she has savings. She has told me so, and Monsieur Porporino, a singer at the theatre, is the depository. A poor credit, returned his wife. Look over the code of our Prussian laws, and you will find one relative to actors, which frees every debtor, from all claim on their part. Take care, therefore, that the depository of the said demoiselle does not invoke the law to keep the money when you present your bills. But since her engagement with the theatre is not broken, since she is to continue with her performances, I will make a seizure upon the funds of the theatre. And what assures you that she will receive her salary? The king knows the law better than anyone, and if it be his good pleasure to invoke it. You think of everything, wife, said Mr. Schwartz. I will be on my guard. No money, no cooking, no fire, the furniture of the regulation. My orders to the letter. It was thus that the Schwartz couple conversed respecting the lot of Consuelo. As to her, as soon as she was convinced that the honest keeper was incorruptible, in the matter of candles, she made up her mind, and so arranged her days that she might not suffer too much from the length of the nights. She refrained from singing all day in order to reserve this employment for the evening. 
she even abstained as much as possible from thinking of music and occupying her mind with musical reminiscences or inspirations before the hours of darkness. On the contrary, she gave the morning and the day to reflections suggested by her position, to recollections of the events of her life, and dreamy reveries respecting the probabilities of the future. In this manner she succeeded, after a short time, in making two parts of her life, one entirely philosophical and the other entirely musical. And she learned that with exactitude and perseverance, she could, up to a certain point, impose regular action and submission to the will of that capricious and restive courser, fancy, this fantastic muse of imagination. By living temperately and in spite of Mr. Schwartz's prescriptions and insinuations, by taking a great deal of exercise, even without pleasure, on the rampart, she succeeded in feeling very calm in the evening, and in employing agreeably those hours of darkness which prisoners, wishing to force sleep in order to escape from the ennui, usually fill with phantoms and agitations. Finally, by allowing only six hours for sleep, she was soon sure of sleeping peacefully every night, without an excess of rest ever encroaching upon the tranquillity of the succeeding one. At the end of a week she was so well accustomed to her prison that it seemed to her that she had never lived otherwise. Her evenings, so much feared at first, became her most pleasant hours, and the darkness, far from inspiring her with the fear she had expected, revealed to her treasures of musical conception which she had long carried within her, without ever being able to make use of them and bring them to form in the agitations of her profession as a virtuoso. When she perceived that improvisation on the one hand and execution from memory on the other were sufficient to fill her evenings, she allowed herself to consecrate some hours of the day to noting down her inspirations and to studying her authors with even more attention than she had been able to bestow upon them in the midst of a thousand emotions, or under the eye of an impatient and systematic professor. To write music, she first used a pin, by means of which she pricked the notes in the interlines, then the little splinters of wood chipped from the furniture and afterwards blackened on the stove at the moment when it was hottest. But as these processes consumed time, and her provision of ruled paper was very small, she found it was much better to exercise still further the powerful memory with which she was endowed, and to lodge there in order the numerous compositions which each evening produced. She succeeded, and in practising, could turn from one to the other, without having written, and without confounding them. Still, as her chamber was warm, thanks to the increase of fuel that Mr. Schwartz benevolently added to the ration of the establishment, and as the rampart on which she walked was constantly swept by a freezing wind, she could not escape some days of hoarseness, which deprived her of the diversion of going to sing at the theatre in Berlin. The physician of the prison, who had been ordered to see her twice a week and to report on the state of her health to Monsieur Pilnitz, wrote that she had an extinction of voice, precisely on the day when the baron proposed, with the consent of the king, to have her reappear before the public. Her exit, therefore, was delayed without her experiencing 
the least vexation. She did not desire to breathe the air of liberty without being sufficiently familiarized with her prison to return to it without regret. Consequently, she did not nurse her cold with all the love and care with which a cantatricia usually bestows upon the precious organ of her throat. She did not leave off her walks, and the result was a slight fever for a few nights. She then experienced a little phenomenon which everybody is acquainted with. Fever brings to the brain of each individual an illusion more or less painful. Some imagine that the angle formed by the walls of the apartment approaches them, gradually contracting, until it presses upon them and crushes their head. Little by little, they feel the angle unclose, enlarge, leave them free, return to its place, to come back again and close anew, thus continuing the alternation of pain and relief. Others take their bed for a wave, which raises them and carries them to the ceiling, lets them fall and raise them again, and thus obstinately tosses them up and down. The narrator of this true history experiences fever under the strange form of a great black shadow which he sees depicted horizontally upon a brilliant surface in the midst of which he is placed. This blot of shadow floating upon an imaginary plane is in a continual motion of contraction and dilation. It enlarges until it entirely covers the brilliant surface and immediately it diminishes, narrows, and comes to be no more than a line, drawn out like a thread, after which it extends anew, to be developed and attenuated without ceasing. This vision would have been nothing disagreeable for the dreamer, if, from a diseased feeling quite difficult to be understood by another, he did not imagine himself to be that dark reflection of an unknown object, floating without rest, upon an arena burned by the rays of an invisible sun, to such an extent that when an imaginary shadow contracts, it seems to him that his being diminishes and elongates until it becomes the shadow of a hair, while when it dilates, he feels his substance equally dilate until it represents the shadow of a mountain enveloping a valley. But there is in this dream neither mountain nor valley, there is nothing but the reflection of an opaque body performing against a mass of sunlight, the same motion that the black eyeball of a cat performs in its transparent iris. And this hallucination, which is not accompanied with sleep, becomes the strangest anguish. We could mention a person who, when in a fever, sees the ceiling falling every moment, another who thinks he becomes a globe floating in space, a third who takes the side of his bed for a precipice, and thinks he is always going to fall to the left, while a fourth feels he is drawn to the right. But each reader could furnish his observations and phenomena from his own experience, which could not settle the question or explain any better why each individual during his whole life, or at least during a long series of years, falls continually at night into a certain dream which is his own and not of another's and undergoes at each attack of a fever a certain hallucination which presents him always with the same characteristics and the same kind of anguish 
This question belongs to physiology, and we think that a physician might perhaps find therein certain indications. I do not say respecting the seat of the apparent disease, which reveals itself by other symptoms not less evident, but respecting that of a latent disease, proceeding in the patient from the weak side of his organization, and which it is dangerous to excite by certain reactive medicines. But this question does not belong to my sphere, and I ask the reader's pardon for having dared to touch upon it. As to our heroine, the hallucination which her fever caused in her must naturally be of a musical character and relate to her organs of hearing. She therefore fell into the dream which she had when wide awake, or at least half awake, the first night that she passed in prison. She imagined that she heard the plaintive sound and eloquent tones of Albert's violin, sometimes strong and distinct as if the instrument resounded in her chamber, sometimes weak as if it came from the horizon. There was in this fluctuation of the intensity of the imaginary sounds something strangely painful. When the vibrations seemed to approach her, Consuelo experienced a feeling of terror. When it appeared to burst out, it was with a vigour that overpowered the patient. Then the sound died away, and she felt but little relief, for the fatigue of listening with an always increasing attention to that music which lost itself in space soon induced a kind of faintness, in which it seemed as if she could catch no sound. But the incessant return of the harmonious gust brought with it a shivering horror, and a blast of insupportable heat, as if the vigorous stroke of the supernatural bow had set fire to the air by unchaining the storm around her. End of chapter 15